What's going on, everybody? You've got Evan Knowles here with the Miltech Podcast. I just got done sitting down with Angelos Descartes, who is a senior computer vision engineer at a company called Rivian. It is one of the hottest automotive companies, EV companies in the world right now. They just went public recently. And we sat down to talk about his journey from the University of Kentucky to a company like Rivian. So I think this is a story that you know we need to highlight more. And uh, we need to highlight more of these stories in general, not only Angelo's. Um, so really, we sat down and talked about uh, the cutting edge technology he's working on at one of the most cutting edge automotive companies. We talked about artificial intelligence in general and how machine vision plays into that. Uh, we talked about the EV space and what kind of challenges it's going to face going forward, as well as the rapid innovation it's seen. You know, I think everybody hears about Tesla day in and day out and Ford, uh, but Every automotive company is shifting towards that space, and there's new entrants like Rivian that are really shaking things up. We talked about Rivian specifically, and then we also talked about uh, his journey from, like I said, the University of Kentucky to a cutting-edge technology startup on the coast. Uh, I think it's really important to talk about that because I think as a state, you know, we should welcome and promote our students that are doing that. And leaving, but also we should encourage more to do it because what you find is, you know, people leave and they want to come back and bring that talent back to Kentucky. And I think Angelo uh, one day might do that. He mentioned that on the podcast. Um, so this is an awesome episode. It's a good insight into what kind of stuff is going on on the coast, especially in the automotive space. And before we get into any of that, uh, let's get a word from our sponsors. Middle Tech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's entrepreneurship and innovation partner. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to work alongside an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information at kyinnovation.com. We're also sponsored by Render Capital. The team at Render Capital is bringing much needed early stage capital to this region and I've personally worked with Mary Grace Ragsdale and Patrick Henshaw. The team at Render is great and I highly recommend reaching out to them to learn more about ways they can help you scale your business. We are also sponsored by Bolt Marketing. As a business owner, you're forced to wear multiple hats, but you should be focused on growing your business while you let somebody else handle your marketing. Our friends over at Bolt offer a full suite of services from websites to branding that will help you transform your marketing and grow your business. To learn more about how Bolt can help you with your business goals, you can check them out at buildwithbolt.com. Again, that's buildwithbolt.com. All right, what's going on, everybody? You've got Evan Knowles here, the Miltech Podcast on here solo. Logan is on the road. I'm sitting down with Angelo Sicardis who is a UK graduate. So we're looking forward to talking about how he got from UK to Rivian, where he is a senior computer vision engineer, uh, which is such a hot space right now. You know, the whole EV space, the AI space is at the forefront of all the technology discussions and he's right in the middle of it. Uh, we're gonna talk about you know his background, his journey from UK to a company like Rivian, and then we're gonna do some deep dive discussions into EVs and AI. So thanks for joining. Awesome. Thanks so much, Evan, for having me. Love Middle Tech Podcast, and I've been wanting to get on for a long time, so I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I uh, came across you on LinkedIn, maybe, and I think I DM'd you and said, hey, you know, awesome to see a UK grad doing something so cool in the tech space. Chatted it up, 
uh, had a couple of good conversations and then I said, hey, you know, you've got a unique perspective we need to share here in Kentucky, which is you went from the University of Kentucky to one of these just hyper growth companies that is all over the news, spacked, working on the coolest technology in the world. Uh, so we had to have you on. Before we get into any of that stuff, though, talk about you know where you're from and then into your education. Sure. Yeah, my family moved to Kentucky in 2004 when I was like nine years old. So even to this day, when people ask where I'm from, I always say I'm from Kentucky. Uh, specifically, I grew up in Oldham County and I went to North Oldham High School, graduated from there in 2013. And then I attended UK from 2013 to 2017. And when I was at UK, I studied computer engineering and yeah, while I was there, you know, or when I started, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to work in, but I did know that I always had this vision of getting out to Silicon Valley. It's, it's kind of interesting. And we were just talking about this before we started recording. I have been like a long time fan of just tech announcements. I think from the very first time you could find an Apple keynote online, I would, you know, either find a way to watch it at school or watch the recap at home or do all these things. And after watching enough of those, eventually the idea just sat in my mind that I had to go to Silicon Valley. I had to work on some of these cool tech products and which ones specifically, you know, I didn't know when I started college, but I always had this interest in cars and these two things, technology and cars kind of eventually came together. And I had a cool opportunity to intern at a self-driving car company back in 2016. And then in 2021, I started working at Rivian. So I can talk a little bit more about my journey in between all these things if you'd like, but that's sort of like a super high level overview. Rivian, just for a little bit of background about the company, the company is about, I think, 13 years old. So it's actually a pretty old company as far as EV startups are concerned, but we really only started working on the electric pickup truck and SUV vehicles in the past maybe five or six years. I believe the first, the first demo of the R1T, our pickup truck, and the R1S, our SUV, we're at the LA Auto Show at the end of 2018. And ever since then, we've been taking that sort of prototype and building it out. So right now, the company is in a place where we have over 90,000 pre-orders for our R1T electric pickup truck and our R1S electric SUV. And then a couple of years ago, we also got this interesting opportunity to partner with Amazon and build 100,000 electric delivery vehicles for them. And not only are they you know, electric delivery vehicles, they also incorporate a lot of uh, smart technologies that don't really exist in the current fleet that they're using. So this means stuff like fleet management software, like understanding where the vehicles are at all points in time, you know, what kind of efficiency they're getting, how many packages are being delivered, things of this nature, and also a huge suite of advanced driver assistance systems, which is typically abbreviated as ADAS, which is the area that I work on. And so we're we have orders for almost 200,000 vehicles right now. And Rivian has grown a lot in the past year and a half since I joined. So I joined in basically the first working day of 2021. And I think there were about 3,000 employees at Rivian at the time. And 2021 was a big year for us. We grew to a total team size of 12,000 uh, just in one year, which is some pretty incredible growth. We like basically filled up all of our offices. We had to expand offices several times. We have a factory in normal Illinois that we got up and running to the point where by the end of last year, we had produced a number of R1Ts, R1Ss, and RPVs. That's the name for the delivery van. Rivian Prime Van is what that stands for. 
And to date, we've we've built about 5,000 vehicles in total, many of them being the R1T electric pickup trucks. And those have been delivered all across the country. And interestingly enough, I got one at the end of last year, which was pretty cool. Um, so that's been fun to drive a nice, cool pickup truck uh, around town. And then some other interesting things about us. We also went public through actually a traditional IPO in November of last year, rather than a SPAC, which was kind of an interesting process for an EV startup. Uh, I think it was the largest IPO since 2014. We raised $12 billion. And with the money, the high level company plan is to expand our production capabilities by growing our factory in normal Illinois, and also building a new factory outside of Atlanta and Georgia with a total combined vehicle production uh, capacity right around uh, 550,000 vehicles by the time both factories are up and running at their full extent. So it's a really exciting time to be there. And even though I joined with about 3,000 people in the company, it was it felt like it was early then and it actually still feels like it's pretty early now. There's still a lot to do. Yeah, I, I, it was so caught up in the middle of all the SPAC hysteria. I might have said it was a SPAC there at the top of the top of the episode, but that that's that's good to know. Is the big uh, big IPO, and you guys got plenty of of capital to uh, continue growing. One of the things that you guys uh, differentiated with and kind of innovated on that we wanted to talk about a bit here was the skateboard technology. You know that that was something that allowed you guys to launch both a truck an SUV and then a uh, delivery vehicle. Talk a bit about that because, you know, there are companies that, that do similar things and similar frames from one uh, vehicle type to another, but you guys went straight up with a skateboard, one, because you're an EV, but two, it creates a platform. So talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So uh, for anyone who might not know, the skateboard is basically like the, the basic foundation of the vehicle that contains the batteries and the motors. And in the case of the Rivian consumer vehicles, the pickup truck and the SUV, the current skateboard is, you know, a battery pack of about 135 kilowatt hours and four motors. So one motor on each wheel. And on top of this platform, you know, we're able to build two pretty different body style vehicles, right? We have the pickup truck and we have the SUV, but the skateboard platform is such that effectively you just need to you know, you can move the rear wheels a little bit further back, add some more spacing, maybe add some more batteries. And with the same basic platform, all the same electronics, all the same sensors, you could swap in and out motors. You could put a different vehicle on top of the same platform. So while like it's, uh, it, like you said, it is a thing that a lot of other uh, companies that are building EVs are doing. We kind of went right out of the gate and leveraged the technology to build three new EVs in our first year of producing vehicles. So we knew that it would be a critical technology and we were able to leverage it straight out of the gate, which was a pretty uh, important thing for the company. So when you all launched your initial marketing campaigns, I noticed that it was, it was heavily focused on adventure, you know, camping, uh, going on uh, off-roading trips. And I thought that was a unique angle to kind of enter the market. And uh, just wanted to ask, you know, when I was actually out in, Utah and Wyoming, I saw a few Rivians out there, uh, which was really cool to see out in real life, uh, these awesome vehicles driving around. But what has uh, customer interest been? And talk about how you position yourself in the market and how that's been reflected in, in your vehicles. Yeah, awesome question. So just to break, break it down into a few different topics. So first, the reception. 
the reception has been like extremely positive so far. So being a car guy, I watch a lot of YouTube videos about various car reviews and the top car YouTuber by the number of subscribers, Doug DeMuro has a ranking system for each vehicle that he reviews on a scale of zero to 100. And the top reviewed car of all time was some, I think, expensive McLaren sports car, millions of dollars, very rare, um, very exclusive. And I think it scored like a 75 out of 100. And the Rivian R1T, which he reviewed, I think in December of last year, you know, coming in at less than a 10th of the price of this expensive car, scored just one point off on the uh, 100 point scale because of all the different uh, features that it has and all of its different capabilities, especially those related to outdoors. So there were a lot of interesting points that were given related to its off-road capabilities. Some of those interesting things are like adjustable ride height and a built-in air compressor in the pickup bed. So if you want to air down your wheels to go off-road, you don't need to lug around a separate air compressor. It's just built into your truck. Some people can option in this thing called a camp kitchen, which the, the vehicle itself has this thing called a gear tunnel, which is kind of below the truck bed behind the truck cab. And it's a space that runs from the left side of the vehicle to the right side of the vehicle that's totally open, unless you option in this camp kitchen, which is a sliding out stovetop and sink that you can use to cook stuff and wash stuff when you're out camping, which, you know, I'm not that extreme of a camper. I've never had a need for that, but for some people, they love this and that type of, you know, versatility and functionality, this, this type of stuff kind of extends all throughout the vehicle. There is a little portable Bluetooth speaker that comes out of the center area in the vehicle. It's called the camp speaker. So if you're at a campsite, you could bring this thing and, you know, your phone is already paired to your car. So you have this other speaker that it's already paired to tons of storage space at the front and all these things together led to not only positive reviews from the one reviewer that I mentioned earlier, but great reception from people in general. And I think since the vehicles started to be delivered at the end of last year, I think the number of pre-orders in our consumer vehicles have gone up by like 25,000 orders, maybe more. There's been a lot of interest in that way. So yeah, those are some of the features and some of the things that we do. And then, yeah, broadly, we position ourselves in the market as this sort of like adventure and lifestyle type of vehicle rather than like a work truck. So the Ford F-150 Lightning is really interesting and a really amazing vehicle, but it's intended to be used for a lot of people as more of a utility vehicle, right? It has a larger truck bed, though I think it has a lower towing capacity. It's sort of geared for the type of person that would need to haul things around more frequently and just do like this, the, the type of lifestyle that requires a bigger truck. Actually, the Rivian R1T is more similar in size to like a Ford Ranger or a Toyota Tacoma. So it's not like a full-size pickup truck like the F-150. And then there's the GM Hummer EV1, which is a much, much bigger vehicle than even the F-150. They also kind of position that as a lifestyle vehicle, but it's like a monster truck. It's, it's really, really big. It's a cool, awesome vehicle also getting really good reviews but it's a lot more expensive and a lot larger. And it doesn't address that type of, you know, off-roading, um, be mindful of the environment, be still relatively efficient and have this like green image that I think Rivian really tries very hard for. And we've been cultivating with all of the vehicles that we've announced so far. 
Yeah. Talk a bit about production goals a little bit. So you, you guys have production goals. You're now a public company, so you've got to kind of got to put out more data here. Um, it's going to be you. You already mentioned Ford and GM seem to be the only ones that have comparable vehicles coming into the market, you know, in, in the meantime and, and soon. So talk about, you know, your production goals and, and how you plan on achieving those. Yeah. So it's public knowledge now, like you said, now that we're a public company, uh, we have to put out these production figures for the year, these estimates. And I believe our estimate for the year of 2022 is to produce 25,000 vehicles in total. Right now, we are really, really optimistic that we can meet this target despite all of the continued challenges from the chip shortage and the supply chain issues. Um, this is a goal that we think is achievable and one that requires, you know, we are building, we're doing all this uh, effort in our factory in normal Illinois to you know, not only meet the production goals of this year, but all of the work that we do right now kind of sets up the processes that are necessary to continue to meet production goals into the future. Like, you know, after we meet our goals this year, it's not like the goals go away. We're going to have bigger and more ambitious goals in the future. And those goals will be based on all of the work that we do this year. And then, you know, the eventual goal for the facility that we currently have in normal Illinois is to produce 150,000 vehicles in a year. So it's a pretty... I think at least impressive ramp to go from, you know, end of last year, I think we produced about a thousand vehicles, which coming from zero vehicles the year before, even that I think is pretty impressive to go from zero to a thousand to 25,000 to, you know, whatever our goal for the next year will be, I think is pretty substantial. And it's no small feat to be a company that is new to the scene and not have existing factories like GM and Ford have and to produce that many vehicles is pretty remarkable. And, you know, Rivian, I have been so impressed by the kind of talent that we've been able to hire, like all throughout the company. There are sounds like a silly statement, but it's a lot harder to build a car than you would expect. And it seems like every single person that we hire in each different category is like, you know, an awesome expert and we're delivering these really awesome vehicles. So I'm I'm really optimistic about our chances going forward, but it's not to say that, you know, these struggles won't continue, but I, I think we'll get through it. And talk about, let's talk about your uh, your work at, at Rivian and what you do day to day. So go in a bit into that, because I do want to focus on this a bit, because, you know, machine learning, AI, machine vision, you know, these are all topics that get thrown around, but I want to put some clarity around them because, you know, the average listener of middle tech might not know the difference between them. So talk about what you work on a daily basis. Yeah, happy to talk about it. And just for a little bit of high-level overview, I think I mentioned this earlier, I studied computer engineering at UK, which at least at University of Kentucky, they offer three degree programs in the College of Engineering that kind of overlap. There's computer science, computer engineering, and electrical engineering. Computer science is a lot of, you know, it's the type of uh, degree that you would get if you wanted to be a pure programmer, which turns out is more or less what I am now, but there are some caveats. Um, but there's also a lot of math and theory that goes into computer science, electrical engineering, pure hardware, usually a little bit of programming, but not much. Computer engineering is right in the middle. And even though right now I'm a software engineer in my day-to-day -day work, the computer engineering is relevant to what I do because being a computer vision engineer, the vision comes from these cameras that we have all throughout the vehicle. And so I get to lean on a little bit of my electrical engineering and hardware experience to understand like at the physical level, at the electrical level, what is going on inside the camera and how does that play into the 
images that we get from the cameras and ultimately use to detect stuff. So now talking about what I do at Rivian, all of our vehicles have, I don't know the exact number, but like many, like a double digit number of cameras on the vehicle. And we use these for various like automated driving features. So we offer a number of features we call our uh, highway driving platform driver plus an equivalent software stack from Tesla is autopilot, not full self-driving. That's a different thing. And our driver plus on our different vehicle platforms offers different things. So in the consumer vehicles, it means the ability to drive on the highway in certain pre-mapped areas with your hands off the wheel or lightly touching the wheel. You still need to keep your eyes on the road, but like if you're on a highway and you're going around a difficult turn, it will steer for you. If there's a vehicle that cuts you off, it will break for you that kind of stuff. Those are the consumer vehicles. I work on the, actually on the Amazon delivery vehicles, excuse me, and specifically my area. And while I can't talk in too, too much detail about exactly what I do in the Amazon use case, it's actually pretty interesting. There are a lot of driving scenarios that are unsafe for delivery drivers. You can imagine driving like a big, tall, long uh, delivery van. You don't have great visibility. So Amazon has a rule for their drivers that they're not allowed to back up or they should back up as infrequently as possible. So like if you or I are driving a car, we might do a three point turn and back up for you know a couple dozen feet to reverse and get through a situation. An Amazon driver in a similar situation would have to do like a 15 point turn because they're not allowed to back up for very long. So the thing that I'm working on is to build in some automated like collision avoidance software so that if the vehicle is backing up and there's something that's in the way, it will automatically stop. But it lets the driver take the most efficient driving route, which is to do the complete reversing maneuver and then to forward out of it. So it's something that allows the drivers to drive safely and in a way that saves time. And then that's the feature at a high level. I use these cameras. Um, they're called surround view cameras that give us a 360 degree view all around the vehicle. We get frames in from these cameras and in my area of computer vision, I focus on detecting static, so non-moving objects using geometry. Um, so machine learning and deep learning are a big important part of the field and it's an area that I have experience in from prior roles, but actually this, uh, the set of algorithms that I'm interested in right now are like basically all geometry equations that have existed for quite a long time, but they're important because they're really robust. The sort of trick with deep learning is that a lot of people think of it as a black box, which is true in a lot of ways. They, the algorithms can achieve state-of-the-art, really good performance, but in certain cases where things go wrong, you don't have perfect visibility into, you know, say what caused the car to not detect a particular object. We like to have some redundancy in our system. So we have these traditional computer vision approaches, which is what I work on, to that are like more debuggable, easily understood. It's one of these things where if the vehicle should not detect something or detect something that it shouldn't, we can go back and easily understand where this came from. So my area is all about safety and redundancy and making sure that, you know, this system works in conjunction with the deep learning system and these things together fuse and make a like a very high level system that is very safe and meets the requirements of the feature. Yeah. Can you give kind of a perspective on on self-driving in general? So 
you know, Rivian has its own technology. Obviously, Tesla has great technology, GM. But what, what is your view of the industry and kind of where it's heading? Because, you know, it's been claimed that we're going to have self, full self-driving soon. Uh, hasn't happened. So what's your what's your view on, on the space and, and what's maybe keeping it from getting to the place that we hope it gets to? Yeah, there's so much to unpack in this question and a lot of really interesting points. The There are sort of like three Ps that go along with building a self-driving car. There is perception, prediction, and planning. And these things tend to go in that order. So perception is what I work in and where, in my opinion, a lot of the most difficult pieces of the self-driving puzzle are. And I want to clarify that like there are also different levels of autonomy. So a lower level of autonomy means the driver has to spend more time paying attention to the vehicle that can't like, you know, in no vehicle that's on the road today, uh, with the exception exception of some vehicles testing in San Francisco, you can't, you know, go to sleep uh, in the backseat. That kind of thing doesn't exist yet. Um, so there are different levels, but what we're working on, even in the lower levels of autonomy, this perception problem first is really, really difficult. And it's an area that is sort of contentious. There are differing views on which sensors are necessary, specifically a lot of people, specifically Tesla, doesn't believe that you should have, that you should need LIDARs in order to perform self-driving, whereas a lot of like level four self-driving companies like Waymo and Cruise believe that you do need LIDAR. And this debate stems from the perception problem. So in the world of computer vision, we're working with images, right, that are taken from cameras. The images are a 2D representation of the 3D world. But when you're trying to use the cameras to do some kind of perception task, if you're like trying to locate the 3D position of all the vehicles around you and the stop signs and the traffic lights and the people, taking these, these 2D locations, like you could imagine a rectangle around a person in an image, understanding the 3D location of that person is so hard. That 2D to 3D conversion is the area that I specialize in and I think is most interesting of anything in computer vision. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in computer vision and AI. And the advantages of having additional sensors like LiDAR, and this is general, this isn't specific to Rivian, it kind of gives you this 3D information about the objects that you detect for free. It's not foolproof, like there are always errors that different sensor modalities will have. But if you're relying on a vision-only system, you have to have a really, really robust system that is, you know, capable in all sorts of scenarios to give you the perfect 3D location of an object. Really challenging example that like we as humans take for granted, but is really challenging for a perception system is like what happens when you have a car in an image with an open door. If you're trying to figure out like what the 3D location is of that car, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Like do you include the open door and how far it opens to, to its 3D to location? Yes, you do want to do this. But like if you're working in the, sort of 2D to 3D image transform space, it's kind of like the door is really thin. It has kind of a weird shape. It doesn't, it's not a part of like the hole that belongs to the car. And just this one tiny thing is one very difficult piece of the puzzle to understand like, okay, 
in order to drive around an obstacle, you first have to know where it is, what it is, and where it's going. And all this perception stuff is really different, difficult. So I can talk more about the, the things related to perception, but I'll touch a little bit more about prediction and planning next. Prediction just means once you have perceived everything in the world and you know about yourself, you are predicting where these other things will be going and where you will be going. And if your trajectory through the world intersects with any of these other things in an unsafe way. But this is also really tricky because, you know, if you have a person that's like jogging on the sidewalk, if you're a human driver, you would probably expect, okay, this person's just a runner. They're going to keep running, you know, whatever, no big deal. I can kind of ignore them. But really you should be focusing on them and thinking there's a chance that they could just dart out into the road. They can change their direction on a dime. And me as the human driver, I need to be prepared for that. The self-driving car has the exact same, it has to be like considering the situation in the same way and how to like program in this, all these different what if scenarios is really, really hard. And so that brings a lot of car companies to working to try to solve this problem with deep learning. But then you have the issue that I talked about earlier of it not being easy to debug. So if you miss something and you have a really good deep learning system, but you miss one thing, understanding why is really, really difficult. So that's prediction. And then the last piece is path planning, which is just, okay, well, now that I know or I have a guess where everything in the world is going to go, this is where I think I should go. This is the safest possible route. Um, so that was a lot on self-driving in general. I can transition into talking about the the field and you know predictions about when we'll have self-driving robo-taxis. But if you have any other questions about the things that I just described, I'm happy to answer them. Yeah, I do want to go. You know, one step deeper on that. Um, just one simple question. Is this a data problem to be solved or can software without the data overcome this? Because, you know, I think when, when I personally, I'm not in the, in, in the industry, but when I look at this, I say, okay, well, you know, Tesla has several years head start. They have so many more vehicles. Can anybody catch up because they have so much more data? Um, what's your answer to that? Can somebody catch up or is this something that somebody can build better software and almost, you know, leapfrog, is that possible? That's a really good question. The data, data is like one of the most valuable things to any kind of a company trying to solve this problem. And it's not like an either or, like if you have awesome data, but bad software, you're not gonna solve the problem. But if you have like horrible data and awesome software, you're probably not gonna solve the problem either. So you need to have both. And what's, what a lot of people don't know actually is a lot of software engineering goes into the process of figuring out what data is useful. This is another thing that Tesla has a good advantage on because they have a couple of years of collecting it and building out these pipelines, but it is like probably the most obvious thing for any car company to work on that's serious about improving their automated driving capabilities is the ability to select the data that is most informative to the algorithms that you're building. So like, you know, a cross country road trip where you're driving from LA to New York, I would venture to guess that like 99.9% .9 of the highway data on that trip is useless. But if you're recording data that whole time, you'd probably end up with hundreds or thousands of terabytes of raw data being collected by the car for the whole trip. And number one, it's not feasible to send all of that up to the cloud and then have, you know, some engineer somewhere process it. The car has to figure out in real time what's interesting 
and then upload it. So the, even to have that pipeline is really hard and takes a lot of interesting software engineering. And then once you have that, then you can begin to use the data to train your algorithms or evaluate your algorithms to deploy to the vehicle to get better at these things in conjunction. It's like the, the ramp up to that point is really hard. But I do believe that you can build a, not a full self-driving robot, but maybe something that works well on the highway with, you know, maybe you could get something that's 80% of the way there in 20% of the time, but to get that last 20% of the way to like full autonomy or like feature complete, even for a highway driving thing is so difficult. And that's where all the really challenging data engineering, software engineering, model training, architecture search, all these things come in. And that's kind of where the uh, great get separated from the good. And, you know, where some companies have big advantages and where some differentiation can be made. Different people have different definitions of what usable data is. And so it is some, someone might find a shortcut that saves a couple years of development or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and just to finish, question. Mm -hmm. and just to finish up the AI and computer vision questions, uh, where else do you see this kind of technology being used and applied? You know, and I know you've worked on several other, you know, iterations and, and uh, applications of uh, computer vision. So where do you, where else do you see this, you know, growing rapidly? Yeah, the short answer, the one-word answer, is everywhere. I think that in a short amount of time, we're going to end up with cameras in absolutely every piece of tech. And, you know, we're actually not too far away from that today. Your smartphone has two or three cameras in it, most likely, maybe even four or five. Um, you know, there are a number of traffic cameras that are looking over the road. There are tons of cameras in cars. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to have a maybe not proliferation of augmented reality, but lots of wearable devices with always on cameras that are processing things locally. And there are just so many interesting things that can be done with computer vision that like, like if you remember what the app boom was like after Apple created the app store uh, one year into the iPhone, I think we're gonna see like 10X that for a number of different industries in the near term. Just thinking about augmented reality as an example, like I could imagine there being a very similar app boom where, you know, a company like Zynga starts up and all they do is build games for AR, right? And all of those games, they all start with this basic understanding of like, okay, if it's a wearable, like you have augmented reality glasses on, you have to understand where the camera is in the world. You have to understand where the world is with respect to the camera. So this is the same perception problem that I was talking about with self-driving cars. And then if you want to overlay these AR graphics, you have to solve that problem. And once you solve all this, then you can build your AR platform on top of it. Or if you're talking about like automated drone flight, right, for drone package delivery, which is a field that is growing rapidly and a field that I actually used to work in. Another example of like, okay, if we're going to have our skies proliferated with these small UAVs, we probably want to make sure that they don't bump into stuff. We don't want them to bump into power lines. We don't want them to bump into birds or each other. If they fall out of the sky, that's obviously very bad. And we're going to see many flying devices with cameras 
strapped all over them uh, that are making sure that they don't bump into stuff. But also there's all the like practical perception of the world side of these things, but there's also an analytics side that doesn't really exist yet that I think a lot of people are going to be getting into in the future. Um, like if you could imagine, you know, if you're a city government, if you're planning like a big new development somewhere, or you're like a private real estate owner and you want to develop like a new restaurant or something in an area, if you could understand like the, not only the number of vehicles that drive by, I understand that that data is already available and it's counted manually by a person. Imagine that you set up a camera, it counts the number of vehicles that go by, but also maybe the make and model of vehicles. If you want to build like a fancy steakhouse, you probably want to put it in an area where a lot of wealthy people are going by. So maybe you want your detector to detect, you know, Mercedes and Rivian vehicles. And okay, maybe this area has a higher likelihood of encountering like a luxury vehicle. So this is the area that you want to put your restaurant in. The, the opportunities are endless. Andreessen, Mark Andreessen has this saying that software is eating the world. I think the next thing that will eat software will be computer vision. Interesting. And uh, while we're still on the topic of these cars and technologies that your company's working on, just briefly, uh, EVs. Uh, there's been a major shift from the car companies as far as sentiment towards EVs. You know, several years ago, they were making fun of Elon and saying it was never going to work. And now they're all rushing as fast as they can to make EVs. Why was that? And then where do you see the EV space going? Yeah, good question. I think the auto industry is like, in general, speaking generally, is like pretty resistant to change. And if they are worried about a newcomer in the field, I think the natural reaction is to kind of downplay it and rest on their laurels until the absolute last minute. There are some companies that like, yeah, initially they were pretty dismissive of the idea, but turned around really quickly. Ford is a really like, I respect Ford a lot for a lot of the tough decisions that they've made over the past couple of years before making their massive pivot into producing EVs. They also made a really difficult and potentially not obvious choice to cut all of their production of like sedans and non-SUV vehicles in the United States for basically everything other than the Mustang all those vehicles were cut, right? And then they then started pivoting to, um, you know, building EVs. They now have an electric Mustang, which is a bit of a controversial uh, decision, but that just goes to show how rapidly they changed their tune from this thing will never happen. Uh, internal combustion engine vehicles are good enough. It's just when you have really good and compelling competition that Tesla led the way on, it's you can't just ignore it forever. And Ford is an example and GM is an example. And I think Rivian is an example of companies that like saw it pretty early on. They saw it at relatively different times. Rivian has been an EV company from the start and is has been around for 12 years. Ford saw it a couple of years ago, but they saw it relatively early and they're making the change pretty rapidly. Other companies like Toyota, interestingly, were very anti-EV until seemed like one day some switch just flipped and they announced like a $14 billion investment or something like this to transition their fleet to full EVs by, I don't know, 2030 or 2035. So the consumer demand is really strong. I think a lot of people, especially right now with gas prices where they are, are interested in trying out an EV. 
And, you know, there are a number of uh, forces at play here, but I just think the main one is like, you, it's, you cannot ignore great innovation and the car companies tried for a little while, but they just couldn't. And now they're trying to get on the same, same game and um, innovate before they die. I don't think that all the big existing car companies that exist today will make it through this transition to EVs because, you know, there's, there's a limited total addressable market and Tesla is stealing market share from, you know, companies that made cars, in, internal combustion cars that didn't pivot quickly enough. I think Rivian has a great opportunity to address some of that market as well in the adventure vehicle and the off-road vehicle space. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It's, it is a really, really interesting time. And again, we're only at the beginning. The I think EVs represent like 1% of new vehicle sales currently. You know, if you want to make a case for EVs going forward, I mean, that is a lot of market to absorb. And those that are investing heavily in it right now, I think are making the right choices. Yeah. And I think one way to look at, you know, the optimism and the market's demand for EVs is the market caps of the EV companies. You know, Rivian, Lucid, Tesla, these companies make fractions of the amount of cars as uh, Toyota and Ford and GM, but their market caps would say otherwise. You'd look at their market caps and say, oh, these companies have been around a long time. They're delivering hundreds of thousands of millions of vehicles. Uh, They've got to be comparable to Ford. Well, they're really not when it comes to production, but when it comes to optimism and technology, they're, they're likely far ahead or else uh, the optimism wouldn't be there. And so it's a really unique thing to watch. And so I'm, I'm happy that you're in the middle of it and experiencing it. And I do want to, you know, here towards the end, ask what it's like to be going from uh, University of Kentucky to a, an insanely fast-growing company like Rivian. But let's talk about UK and your time while you were there. Um, when you're at UK, you mentioned you really didn't know what you wanted to, to do other than the fact you wanted to go work for a high-tech, high high-growth company on the coasts. So when you're at UK, what was the feel of being pushed towards particular jobs? You know, this is something that I, I question about universities, especially more conservative universities in, you know, the mid Midwest or, or the South. Uh, are they pushing people towards really high tech jobs or just more conventional manufacturing? What did you feel while you were at UK? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like the push was there whether or not it was intentional or a result of the environment is tough to say, but like, you know, the types of companies that I wanted to work for were not present at our career fair. And that's not to say that like UK doesn't do a good job with their career fair. I do think that they do a good job, but there's a lot of room for improvement. But if you want to work outside of like this, the accepted and normal sphere of influence of the university of Kentucky, as an example, you have to go and get that opportunity mostly on your own, or at least you have to kick that off on your own. Uh, While I was at UK, this is something that I found out. Uh, I wanted to intern for Tesla, and I was looking at internships with uh, another company that I did end up interning at, uh, Faraday Future in 2016. And I found the internship. I, you know, had to basically cold email people at the companies until I got an interview. And then once I was in the pipeline, I was able to go to the resources at UK and like get their help for like, okay, what should my cover letter look like? What should I say in my resume? All that stuff that they were, they were really good at. But the top of the funnel I had to do on my own because I had this sort of different career plan for myself, which I think is unfortunate. One of the things that I 
hope I can do while I have this job at Rivian is I would love for Rivian to attend the UK career fair. We have a lot of really great, like not only manufacturing job opportunities in our plant in normal Illinois, if people would prefer to stay in the Midwest, but we also have tons of jobs all across the country, you know, software jobs in Southern California, Northern California, Canada, Michigan, we have jobs all over the place. In fact, as a shameless plug right now, we are hiring for, I think a thousand positions all across the company. You know, for anyone that's listening and is interested, feel free to apply and actually feel free to reach out to me. But no, the um, the the process at UK, you know, kind of made it such that I had to go my own way and do it like that. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. And I think the takeaway is, you know, if you know you want something, you've got to do it yourself because nobody's going to get you there and lift you totally. up and, and like bring you to where you want to go. You know, that's a case with life in general, but especially in college, because they just don't have the time or the bandwidth to, on an individual level, make sure that each student gets their dream job. And if you have a dream job, you know, mine wasn't necessarily at a particular company, but it was, I want to work within the software startup space. UK had no support for that whatsoever while I was there. So I just had to figure that out. You did the same thing. And I think just the takeaway there is, you know, you've got to control your own destiny. You know, if you lean too heavily on the system or, you know, the progression that you're supposed to go through in college and you're not going to get there. Another thing you mentioned that I think is really important that I really wanted people in Kentucky and, and just UK to understand, because I didn't understand this. So I got out in the real world. A smart person in San Francisco is no different than a smart person in Kentucky. I don't know if you said that the first time we talked. I don't know where I heard that, but somebody said that. And I'm like, wow, that is just so true because we feel like, and we look at San Francisco and we say, I can't do that because that's just another level of intelligence, but it's really not. It's just the density of intelligence. It's not how intelligent are these people? It's the density. Can you speak on that? You know, you're in these high growth companies. You've been around Kentucky. You come back often. Talk about that. Just kind of how have you seen that lived out? Yeah, very well said. I think that, you know, I've been uh, responsible for hiring at every job that I've held since I graduated. And this means reviewing resumes from people from top universities across the country and across the world and interviewing them and you know, I think back to my time at UK and I recall some of these conversations that I've had, there is no discernible difference between like, you know, the smart Stanford grad that I talked to and the smart UK grads that I know and went to school with, right? Like it is, it's so crazy to think back. Like, you know, when I was at UK, I felt like I, I had imposter syndrome even back then because the quality of the people that were at, you know, at UK and my classes with me was like so crazy good. And then I got to Silicon Valley and it was like the same thing, but they were at like the same level, you know? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of these things where you do kind of like me being from Kentucky, working in an environment where many other people went to, I hate to use this term, but like top tier education institutions, you know, sometimes I feel like there's a bit of a stigma against you or like, I, I have this feeling like I have to prove myself. And when I was early in my career, this was like a really strong feeling. The imposter syndrome was like really, really strong. I was afraid that I was interviewing people to replace me uh, in my early career. But you have this, this feeling like you have to prove yourself. And I just do like, and maybe you don't have to, but I think the takeaway is kind of similar to what we were talking about with going out and finding the job in the first place. When you get there, it is a little bit of an uphill battle. 
You have to prove to your coworkers, even if you already know that you're smart, you have to prove to them that you're capable, which everyone that I've met from Kentucky is certainly capable of doing, right? It's it's just a uh, uncomfortable situation that you find yourself in, but you can get through it and you can change a person's perception about a place pretty easily. Rivian, as a result of what I think has been a, you know, over a year and a half of good work at the company has been extremely, now when I talk about like the possibility of hiring people from Kentucky, they're very open to that, right? And I, I think my influence and being one of the few people from Kentucky in my org has helped. But yeah, it's, it is tricky, but it is really important to keep in mind that, you know, if you have these ambitions, maybe you'll have to work a little bit harder at first, but at the foundational level, if you're a smart, talented person in Kentucky, you'll be a smart, talented person elsewhere. Got it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think it's a mindset thing. I think we need to work on telling more stories like this so we can elevate people's self-confidence and, and belief that you know they can do it too. Uh, that's part of the primary reason I wanted you on the podcast is just for that exact reason. So you mentioned the, the uh, job fairs. Uh, what else do you think universities like Kentucky or UofL can improve on to uh, just get more people out of Kentucky and into more innovative jobs? Because we ultimately want that. You know, I think there's this desire as people from Kentucky that, you know, even if you do leave, uh, there's something that brings you back. You know, I experienced that. It sounds like when we spoke, you know, you, you feel the same thing that one day you want to come back. And, you know, why wouldn't as a state we want people to leave get the job experience at somewhere like a SpaceX, a Tesla, Rivian, wherever it might be, a Google, a Facebook, and then come back to Kentucky and start their businesses. I've got several amazing founders that I'm speaking to that did exactly that after COVID. Uh, what do you think universities can do a better job of in preparing people to have that you know, self-confidence or just put the opportunities in front of them? What else other than job fairs? Yeah, thousand percent agree that that is what people, that that's what I think we should want for Kentuckians as well to go and get the experience and bring it back to the state. An interesting idea that I, I've been thinking about for a long time that is actually shamelessly stolen from another university, but it's a great idea. So I think UK and UofL should copy it. When I was working at my first job out of, out of college, uh, there was, I think it was like the entrepreneurship club or something from the University of Michigan came to my company's office in San Francisco. They did like a spring break trip where instead of you know going out and partying for spring break, I think it was a group of about 30 students. They flew out to San Francisco and they spent maybe the second half of the week going around and touring a bunch of companies. And you know, usually uh, in the case of U of M, like they had an alumni at the company that they would leverage to get like a tour and an info session and all this. But we had no University of Michigan alumni at the company that I worked for, Iris Automation. They just like cold emailed the founder or the head of BizDev and we set up this awesome info session for the students and, you know, they were leaving Iris, which was, you know, 40 person, 50 person startup at the time and going to Cruise, which, you know, acquired by GM by for a billion dollars and had hundreds of employees. They're seeing like a lot of these different opportunities in just one day. And then other days they go to like Facebook, they go to Google, they go to other small startups and they get all this like very hands-on insight into like, oh, these are just normal people working there. Like these people aren't like, you know, working all day. They don't look like they're miserable at their desks. Like they're all telling us how great their job is. And, you know, they're also telling us like, 
Yeah. Okay. Well, like in my case, when I, I was a part of the info session for U of M, because a lot of people are concerned about like, well, all my family is in the Midwest. I don't really want to be so far away. It's also comforting for students that are weighing all these options to hear, well, you know, San Francisco is a major airport. Like, you know, we've got one-way flights into Cincinnati and Detroit and Chicago. And like, you know, I understand that everyone's situations are different, but it is a smaller jump than you may think. And I think starting this sort of, call it entrepreneurship spring break program has potential for exponential growth because, you know, imagine a small number of students that go on the program end up getting placed into some company in Silicon Valley or maybe on the East Coast. Then when the the group comes back the next year, those students get to say, oh, I was in this thing last year. I discovered that this is really where I wanted to be. And then that convinces more students, more and more students, and we create this kind of exponential growth where, you know, maybe eventually it students going to the West Coast or the East Coast from UK becomes much more common. That's like kind of a practical idea that I have. But of course, it takes like time and money from the university side and how to actually enact that. I don't know. But I think there's something there. And clearly, it's already working for U of M. So no shame in stealing a good idea. All right. One more question before the final forward looking uh, statement on, you know, we always like to bring it back to Kentucky. But before we do that, uh, talk about what it's like to work at a high growth, insanely high tech company. Uh, anytime you work for a startup, uh, there is massive ups, there's excitement, you're working on uh, fun, uh, exciting topics, you're working alongside other driven people, but alongside of those things, there's major lows. You know, Rivian has no shortage of them, just like any other very high growth company. Talk about the ups and downs and just the positives and negatives of working at a company like Rivian. Yeah, no, good question. <laughs> and it's really easy for me to talk about the highs in general. I'm like extremely optimistic when it comes to these things. Most of the lows I'm usually able to like brush off, even with prior companies when it was like, you know, an early stage, like my first job out of college, just as a quick example. We hadn't even raised our Series A, or maybe they just raised their Series A when I joined and I was the sixth or seventh employee. And a lot of my friends in Kentucky were like, are they paying you? Like, how? What, what's going to happen if they go under? Like, it's such a small startup. What, what will happen if you lose your job? I'm like, eh, I'll find another one. No big deal. Um, but the upside, you know, I was always like, oh, we're going to take over the drone market and we're going to be this whole thing. But anyway, at Rivian with the high growth, it has been really, really interesting. I think my hiring class at Rivian, like the, the group that onboarded with me, was one of, I think it was the biggest to date with like maybe 80 or so people that had joined at that time. And then every single week after that, for the entirety of the year, I think every single hiring class was bigger than mine every week, right? So we were hiring so many people so fast. And in our like company Slack channel, new channels were popping up, new people were showing up, giving interesting opinions. Like the rate of growth of the company was insane. And even in my team, I had maybe the biggest, I wouldn't call it a negative, but the biggest challenge for sure was the self-driving team and the computer vision team within the self-driving team kind of went through a couple of reorgs as like the team grew, the features that we were responsible for expanded in scope. And, you know, my original manager is no longer my manager. He got shuffled around. I have a new manager that's really great, but like 
I had to hire him, which was kind of an interesting challenge. And the number of people in my immediate team went from like six or so, maybe like four when I joined to like at one point there were 20 of us and then we reorged back down and now we're back down at six. So all throughout that, uh, the interesting part of it was like the amount of information that you heard about other people's work changed a lot. I've been very lucky at Rivian, unlike prior jobs at other early stage startups where like, you know, I had to wear a million different hats and do things that are like, you know, not only outside of computer vision, but even sometimes outside of engineering. In Rivian, I've been very lucky that my job has been hyper-focused on delivering the very important feature that I work on. But like the amount that I know about the products that are going on in other parts of the company has decreased. And that's kind of like a frustrating thing as a person that like fundamentally believes in the company and loves what we're building. I want to know everything that everyone is working on all the time, but it's not feasible when you're at a high growth company and you kind of just have to like have faith that the, you know, the company that you're working at, it's hiring great people, they're going to build cool things and you're not going to know about it until, you know, you get the software update in your car or they announce it at like an earnings call or something like that. You know, it's just kind of a, that, that rapid growth is really interesting. And then like, you know, we went through uh, like company communication, especially with so much of the workforce working from home. It is a challenge for any company, but when a company quadruples in size and, you know, a big portion of the company is working remotely, managing communication is hard. And, you know, like we have a biweekly company all hands with the CEO, um, you know, he's giving a talk to now 12,000 people every other week, very focused on like tactical and practical things that the company is working on. And I think that's really important to keep people motivated and aligned on our core company goals, but also our company values. We focus a lot on our values at Rivian, which I think is also a good thing that unifies employees. But yeah, I mean, the highs are just like, unlike anything I've seen in my professional career, like when there was a week when the press embargoes were lifted on all of the reviews of the R1T and like I had driven around in them. I knew it was a cool car. Like I had never really been a pickup truck guy, but I believed in the company and I knew we were building something good. But like there were 40 articles that came out all on the same day. And I don't know how much work I did that day because I was just reading article after article, reading like every good thing that every person had to say about the Rivian vehicles. That was amazing. And then, you know, being with the company for the IPO was also like an amazing once in a lifetime kind of a thing to go from, you know, we know as a company how we're doing, but the public doesn't really know. Now Rivian is in the public eye and, you know, really cool to be a topic of conversation and in the same breath as very successful, highly respected companies like Tesla and Ford and GM, but also we're under a lot of scrutiny and where like my previous companies were like single or double digit number of team member companies. Now Rivian is very big and very public. Right after we went public, there was a lot of like negative press about just, you know, the valuation of the company and it being disconnected from reality. And that's a whole separate topic. But like, as a person who like, this is why I love working for startups because like, I just get so into whatever my startup is building and it doesn't even have to be my own. First time I talked to you, Evan, you told me about Simba and I was sold immediately. Like it made perfect sense. But 
when people are saying bad things about something that you have such strong beliefs about, it's kind of a, a tough thing to rationalize and get through. And I think I've gotten better at it now. You just kind of have to have a thick skin and remember that, you know, people saying bad things about your company doesn't change the amazing work that you're doing and the amazing products that you're building and the good feedback that you're getting from your customers. So it has been an awesome, awesome ride. And like I said at the beginning of the conversation, I think we're still early days of Ruby and I think there's still a lot more exciting stuff to come. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to tracking it as well. Last question. You're from Kentucky. Uh, you are passionate about uh, the, the Kentucky culture. What did you take from you know, your time in Kentucky to Rivian and to the coastal companies you've worked for? And, and how has Kentucky kind of molded you to be a better professional or just a better person in general? Yeah, I think there's something about, I, I've never really been able to put it in words, but every time I go back to Kentucky, I just feel so like happy and at home and the people there are very nice and very pleasant. But I, I always get this sense of like, people in Kentucky are very like, kind of like what I was saying earlier, I have like, basically like unlimited faith in whatever company I hear about or effort that I'm working on or just thing in general. I think I got this from my time in Kentucky. I think a lot of the people in Kentucky are very, I, I get this like infectious sense of optimism from a lot of the people that at least I've known in Kentucky that like the things that they're working on are possible. The ideas that they have are achievable. Their goals are achievable, right? Like, you know, and it, it's not just professionally. It's like, you know, you meet someone at Keeneland that's convinced that, you know, whatever their trifecta box is going to make them $200,000 richer. You meet that person and you listen to them. They damn believe that, right? They really, really believe that. And you, as a result, believe that. I think Kentuckians are very, very hopeful people. And also, like, kind of on the flip side, it's it's also uh, related. But I think Kentucky people also are very practical people, very pragmatic. Uh, I also think this is a really great skill that I picked up from Kentucky. But, like, Kentuckians, we don't really get the the advantage of, like, you know, even if we have a lot of faith and we have a lot of hope in ourselves and the things that we're doing, I think we still, there's an expectation that we have to prove it. I think a lot of people maybe doubt Kentuckians. And as a result, we feel like we have to show that we can do these things. And so there are a lot of people that are very driven to make whatever thing they believe will happen actually happen. So I think those are two things that I took away from Kentucky. I think Kentucky had a huge positive impact on me. And I, I love going back there. I mean, any small excuse that I can to get back there, I always take. And yeah, I hope, like we were talking about a little bit ago, I hope at some point in my career, I can end up back living and working in Kentucky. I mean, there are some awesome, awesome things going on. Also, I, I have a, a lifelong uh, fan of the Corvette brand. Corvette is like my favorite auto company in the world, maybe second favorite behind Rivian. Um, but they're based in Bowling Green. They produce these vehicles in Bowling Green. And I think they are an awesome example of what Kentuckians can do best. Corvette is like right now in its current iteration, like a world-class sports car. And it competes with, you know, the likes of uh, sports cars that are like triple the price from all over the world. But the Kentucky, the vehicle made in Kentucky can do it extremely well at a great value and 
you know, it is a beloved brand. And, you know, that's, I think one day I maybe would like to come back and work for Corvette maybe when I'm done at Rivian. But <laughs> no, I, I love Kentucky and I think there's just so much that it can offer the country and the world. Yep, I'm with you there. I spec'd, uh, I spec'd out a Z06. A oh, really? <laughs> I, no uh, kidding. I, I want to order one. <laughs> I grew up loving uh, Corvettes and yeah. Lamborghinis, so I like to say that I'm going to go from my Camry to a uh-huh. Z06 and then to a, uh, let's see, maybe an Aventador or something. I don't know. I believe we'll you will, Evan. I, I believe you will. <laughs> and I, uh, one more quick, quick anecdote that I'll add. When my family, before we even moved to Kentucky, we lived in New York. Uh, in 1999... This is a long story, but I'll cut it short. We won a car and we traded that car in for a Corvette. And this is in 1999. The Corvette's a 1993 model. It has a little sticker in the door that says made in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And it's a little cartoon picture of the red Corvette. And it was like a sign that we would end up in Kentucky someday. That's actually, in addition to my Rivian, I still have that Corvette. And I love that thing. I will never get rid of it. I look at it and I get happy because it reminds me of home. You know, the reason why I love cars is because of that car. And this is like the most, probably the most special item in my life. It's a great, like perfect symbol of everything that I love about Kentucky. Love it. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on again. Wanted to get your perspective on just going from Kentucky to a very high tech, high growth company and Mm -hmm. share that with people here uh, locally because I think we need more stories like that to inspire people. So thank you for being inspirational. Yeah, of course, Evan. Really happy to do it.